Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's word together. So glad to have you along. Good Morgan. Good Morgan. Good. Well, I guess that would work for some. Good morning, Megan. <laughs> David Bickard fan. Hey, Lon. Uh, yeah, the great question about circumcision. Hold that till uh, Romans 4 and we will see if uh, Paul gives us any answer. Hey, Lewis. Uh, Carol, good to have you back with us. Hey, Keith. Uh, Ken, good morning in Canada. Uh, Lewis has 10 for 10 on the picture. Yeah, I figured out at least one solution. The problem is it involves someone else. And so as long as I remember to do it, whenever uh, my wife and kids are around, I should be able to have a nice crisp picture for you. Otherwise, uh, you might get the blurry me. Uh, hey, Edgar, good to have you with us. Uh, maybe it's when you wear your glasses. Hey, Ron, HJM, hi. All right, so... Today is going to uh, Edgar. This is this is the Edgar special edition. Um, <laughs> I'm just picking on you because I can because uh, you know you're a thousand miles away and you can't get to me. Plus, uh, you're one of my students, and uh, the way you treated me uh, with Megan and some others on Facebook recently, you deserve this. So I'm picking on you. So you asked a question yesterday that is typical of what so many students of the Bible wrestle with. So, and it's, this is not new. We've been over this, but we're going to go over it again. And I want to start by looking at a phrase that Paul uses here in chapter three, which probably now we won't get this far today, but just look at, at what he says here. He says, uh, <laughs> David Beckett says, is the answer Jesus? No, in this case, the answer is not Jesus, but most of the time it is. Here's what Paul says in Romans 3, 5. But if our righteousness demonstrates the righteousness, I'm sorry, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? And then look at this little parenthetical statement. I am speaking in human terms. Literally, it is, I'm speaking according to men. Now, he uses this kind of phrasing several times in his letters. He'll use it again in Romans. And we're not, I'm not sure exactly what he means. But he throws it in on occasions where He's using something like an analogy or he's putting words in the mouths of other people because this is the kind of argumentation men use. Okay? It's kind of like he's saying, I'm, I'm talking the way men talk. That's key to understanding Paul's letters. He doesn't write systematic theology. Nowhere, nowhere in the New Testament, or the Old Testament for that matter, is there systematic theology. Men have created systematic theology. When Paul writes his letters, and this is true of Peter and James and Jude and John, when they write their letters, they are writing persuasively. In their day, it was called rhetoric. Educated men studied 
logic, and rhetoric. And they learned how to persuade someone of their point of view. And one of the techniques was to create a hypothetical situation to make their point or to, uh, to use an ad hominem argument. Now, you may be familiar with the ad hominem fallacy. If you watched the debates last night or the debate last night, you saw a lot of ad hominem fallacy. If you read any political speech, any media speech, which I'm sure you do, you hear ad hominem fallacy all the time. Uh, for instance, Mike Pence basically was saying Vivek Ramaswamy is not a good candidate because he doesn't have the right experience, right? So he's attacking the man rather than attacking his policies. That's an ad hominem tech. It's illogical. It is irrational and irrelevant how much experience Ramaswamy has. The question is, are his views the views that you think are the right ones? So I'm not choosing size there. I'm simply saying that political speech is almost entirely ad hominem fallacy. Ad hominem argument is to place yourself in the position of the other person and take his argument to its logical conclusion. Paul does this very persuasively in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, okay, let's assume there is no resurrection. Some of you are arguing there's no resurrection. All right, let's take the position that there is no resurrection. If that's true, then even Jesus has not been raised from the dead. And the ramification of that is, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, he didn't die for our sins, therefore you are still in your sins, and our faith is in vain, and indeed our preaching is sinful because we are preaching that Jesus has come back from the dead. If he has not come back from the dead because there's no such thing as resurrection, then we are preaching against God. Now, when Paul says those things, Edgar, you listening? When Paul goes down that line of thinking, is he saying there is no resurrection? Is he saying we are still in our sins? Is he saying that we are sinning as we preach the gospel? No, of course not. We understand he is arguing according to man. He is arguing ad hominem. He, he's taking a position and putting out a hypothetical scenario, arguing to its reasonable end and showing the absurdity of it. Paul does this all the time, but we've been trained to read his words theologically as though he is making a, system, a systematic statement all over the place. He's not. He is trying to persuade his audience of the truth. And those are very, very different things. Speaking theology, systematic theology, and using persuasive argumentation, those are very different things. And the problem is we interpret his argumentation as though it's a systematic theology presentation. And I'm gonna show you uh, based on Edgar's question yesterday. And again, this is, I'm really not picking on Edgar. I, I get all kinds of questions and it just demonstrates again, 
this is hard for us to break loose from. So I want to try to show you. So let me let me start my with my own hypothetical. Let's suppose that uh, there was a mother who had several young girls, four or five of them, and one of them uh, is quite a bit older than the others. Others, and the mom is kind of a deadbeat. She sits around drinking wine all day on social media, doesn't do much. The oldest daughter is schooling the younger daughters. They're, they're homeschooled, so the oldest daughter is actually doing the schooling. The oldest daughter walks down to the grocery store a couple times a week to buy groceries. She cleans the house. She, she teaches the, uh, the other girls how to do things at home and so on and so on, right? You, you get the point. And let's say I was brought in to, uh, to counsel, to rebuke this, uh, this mother. What if I said to this mother, look, your oldest daughter is taking care of the house. She's taking care of the other girls. She's doing the grocery shopping. She's attending to everything that needs to be done while you just sit around and waste your time drinking and gossiping and on Facebook and Pinterest and all that. Uh, isn't your oldest daughter a better mother than you are? All right, Edgar, did you follow me? Did you follow my little analogy there? I say to the mother, isn't your oldest daughter a better mother than you are? When I say that, am I affirming that the oldest daughter is the mother? Edgar? If I say to her, I say to the mom, isn't your, old, isn't your daughter a better mother than you are? Am I actually asserting that the oldest daughter is a mother? Obviously, I'm not. I'm using a hypothetical statement to make my point. I don't think the oldest daughter is the mother. I know she's not the mother. The mother's the mother. The oldest daughter is a daughter. That's why we call the oldest daughter the daughter and the oldest and the mother the mother. But you see how that would be, could be at least, persuasive and make a point to the mom. You tracking with me? How about this one from the scripture? 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, If I speak with tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now, all these if statements, are we to assume that Paul believes that he or somebody else can speak all the tongues of men and angels or that he knows all mysteries and all knowledge and he has all faith such that he could remove mountains is he saying that we should give all of our possessions to feed the poor or that he does did Paul give his body to be burned is he saying that if you have love you're going to give your body to be burned all of these are hypotheticals to make a point right I can do these amazing things, 
but if I don't have love, I am nothing. When he says, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, does he really mean he's become a clanging cymbal if he doesn't have love? No, it's a metaphor, right? It communicates something. It just makes noise. So in Romans chapter 2, that we looked at yesterday, for indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Does he mean that for the one who's circumcised, the Jew, if he breaks the law, that his foreskin actually grows back? See the, see the phrase here? If you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So taken literally, he means they were circumcised, but they broke the law and the foreskin grew back. Is that why he made that statement? Your circumcision has become uncircumcision? Of course not. He is making a point. You who have received this mark in your body to mark you off as Jews under the law, if you understand the whole purpose of the law, then you understand that you are no better, you Jews are no better than Gentiles if you break the law. The Gentiles are sinners, so are you a sinner and no better than them if you break the law. If the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, and this is what prompted Edgar's question yesterday, and I've been asked this question again and again and again every time I teach Romans. Is this saying, is Paul saying that an uncircumcised man can keep the requirements of the law? To ask that question is to miss the point. Does Paul think that uncircumcised people are under the law of Moses? Anyone? Does he think that? Does Paul believe? And you don't even have to leave Romans to answer this question. Does Paul believe that the Gentile man, the uncircumcised man, is obligated to keep the law of Moses? Okay, I see lots of no's. Prove it from Romans. You don't even have to leave the chapter. Anyone? If you're driving along, listening to this later while you work out, can you refer to a passage even in your head? You don't have to know the verse, but uh, do you have a, a phrase that Paul used to show that the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, aren't under the law? bet somebody's going to get it, but for the sake of time, I'm going to go ahead and pull it up. Chapter 2, verse 12. 
For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law. Right? So what does Paul think is the situation of the Gentile with respect to the law of Moses? Paul thinks they don't have the law. Everybody see that? When Gentiles who do not have the law, and just for clarity's sake, the way this is structured in the Greek, he's not suggesting some Gentiles do have the law, but there are some Gentiles, Gentiles who do not have the law. That's not how it works. This is a participial phrase describing Gentiles. Gentiles. Those who do not have the law. Okay? So that is a clear statement. Paul does not believe Gentiles have the law. So then down here, when he says, if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirement of the law, has he forgotten that the Gentiles don't have the law? No. He's making a point. He is hitting the Jews where it hurts. He's expanding on his statement that the Jew who transgresses the law has become the same as the Gentile. He is a sinner. Your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Not that your foreskin has grown back, but you are in the same position as the Gentile. You are guilty before God. So, if the oldest daughter takes care of the household, isn't she a better mother than you are, mom? Just like in that statement, I don't actually think the oldest daughter is the mother. I'm simply trying to rebuke the mom for being lazy and negligent. In the same way, Paul is not suggesting here that the uncircumcised person is now under the law. He's simply saying if a Gentile were to keep the law, his uncircumcision would be regarded as circumcision. If that were true, if that happened, if the daughter really was the mother, which she's not, if the uncircumcised kept the law, he doesn't. That's not the point. The point is circumcision is meaningless if you don't keep the law. His uncircumcision will be regarded as circumcision. Clearly, I think it's clear. I hate when people say that. I should stop saying clearly. <laughs> Paul isn't concerned here with circumcision. Because literally, if you have your foreskin, you are not circumcised. And if your foreskin comes off, you're uncircumcised, right? That's not the point. He's talking about the Jews and their arrogance under the law, thinking they're good because they have the law. And he's saying, look, if there was a 
a Gentile who kept the law? He's a better Jew than you. He goes on in the next verse. The one who is physically or by nature uncircumcised, that's the Gentile. He will judge you who, though you have the letter, through the letter and circumcision are a transgressor. And now he gets to his bigger point. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly. He's saying all you Jews in this audience, in the Roman church, you think you're Jews because you have the outward sign of circumcision. But even as we saw yesterday, through the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy and other places, what God was really after was the heart, not the penis. <laughs> so my, if you make a coffee cup or a shirt, don't put my name on that quote. <laughs> Don't want to be that guy. Don't want to be known as that guy. But it's, 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 it makes the point, doesn't it? The Jew is one, is one who is inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. And his praise is from men, not from God. In all seriousness, Edgar and the rest of you, do you see how Paul is arguing in human terms here? He's arguing according to men. He is arguing persuasively and rhetorically getting in the heads of men, trying to expose the self-righteousness and hypocrisy and error of Judaism and circumcision and the law and all of that. He's not making a theological statement as to whether or not Gentiles are under the law or can keep the law. He already made that statement. Gentiles who do not have the law. This is why it's so important to read the scripture again and again and again and again and follow the argument. And whenever you take any verse and simply make a, uh, draw a theological conclusion from it and start comparing it to all these other verses in the New Testament, you are likely to miss the point. It's just not written that way. So let me set you up for chapter three, because chapter three, these first verses are going to test you. Okay. So all of this about Jews raises the question, then what advantage has the Jew? Having the law doesn't give them advantage unless they keep it. Having a circumcision doesn't give them any advantage if they don't keep the law. It's the mark on the heart by the spirit that matters. A Gentile who, hypothetically, kept the law would be a better Jew than the Jew. Is there any point, any benefit, any gain, any profit whatsoever in being a Jew and being circumcised? Paul says, yeah, it's great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Philistines were not given the word of God, the promises, the law. The Amorites, the Canaanites, none of them were given the words of God. And you kind of expect him to go on. He says, first of all, you kind of expect a list, right? And then second and third, 
but he doesn't. He goes straight to this question, and if you want to be prepared for Monday, pour over the rhetorical, persuasive argument that Paul lays out in these following verses. What then? If some did not believe, some who did not believe what? Their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? I think for a lot of you, when you see what Paul means here by faithfulness of God, it is going to rock your world. I'll give you a hint. God's faithfulness in verse 3 is not a positive thing. We've been so conditioned to think God's faithfulness only means good things for people. But read this in light of the point he's making through this section, through verse 8. And it will rock your world. It's hard. This is a hard passage. And if you really want to do your homework, when Paul here quotes Psalm 51, go back and look at how that quote occurs in Psalm 51 and then see how it makes sense, how Paul uses it here. All right. Our time is up. Ken says he's ready for his world to be rocked on Monday. Excellent. Uh, Lon says, I've understood that, but you articulated so well. Well, thank you. I'm Glad to hear that. This is this is tough stuff. All right. So tomorrow's Friday. Come back, gentlemen. Friday's with the fellows. We'll continue to talk about manhood and wisdom. And for the rest of you, do your homework if you want to. And uh, we will come back to chapter three, Lord willing, on Monday. Have a great day. Think about it. See you then. Take care.